This week's episode is brought to you by the Communicore Weekly Goat Line. Call us at 424-785-4628 and leave us a message for our final show. Again, that's 424-785-4628, 424-785-GOAT. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And throughout the entire, you know, history of the show itself, we looked at a lot of other theme parks that were not Disney. So I'm glad we get to, you know, look at another one right now as our final look at outside Disney parks. Yeah, it it was a hard choice to make. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many amazing theme parks. I've had so many great contributions, but uh, had a couple good friends ring out with this one. So I, I have never heard right. of this one before. So I'm, Sound, I'm well there. I think that's a good one. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's learn about it. It's time for theme park history. Since this is the last history segment that I'll write and research for Communicore Weekly, I wanted to look at something that tied into amusement park history and is fairly unique. Uh, I reached out to some friends, and Lon suggested that I look at Lagoon Amusement Park in Utah. And I checked with Captain Leo, and he wanted to learn a lot more about Lagoon as well. So, the Lagoon Amusement Park is located in Farmington, Utah, about 20 miles from Salt Lake City. And it's a family-owned amusement park that is 129 years old. And it also includes one of the oldest operating coasters in America. Now, the park is about 150 acres and includes a water park that is cleverly called Laguna Beach, which is hilarious because I live next door to Laguna Beach. Um, (laughs) It's known for its eclectic collection of 10 roller coasters and a large number of family-style rides. So, uh, before we get into Lagoon, like always, I have to go back. We need to go a bit back, uh, back a bit further and talk about the Great Salt Lake of the 1800s. And at the time, there were a total of eight resorts around Great Salt Lake in the 1870s and the 1890s. And Utahns, as I'm probably not saying this right, but uh, Utahns in the late 1800s loved the Great Salt Lake where they could float like a cork and this was their passion in the warm, you know, five or six months of the year. And eventually, though, the changing lake levels would flow would flood out most of them, uh, the resorts, not the people, and leave them high and dry. So many of the resorts were built by local railroad companies to promote their lines. The Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad built the Lake Park Resort on the shore of the Great Salt Lake in 1886. And one of the first amenities built at the resort was the bathhouses. And there's a great description from the July 29, uh, 1886 Salt Lake Herald. And we quote, 
There are a hundred in number in, of bathhouses, and each one is a shower, bath, a stationary wash basin, mirror, chairs, etc. They are smoothly furnished inside and present a comfortable and cheerful appearance, while the outside is made attractive by being neatly painted. Excellent ventilation is secured, and over the high partition between each of the rooms is an incandescent electric light, which must prove a great value to the bathers. A strip of ground running the entire length of the bathhouse has been enclosed by a handsome fence, and this will soon be converted into a grass plot. That is one handsome fence. I'm not exactly going to lie. exactly. So the bathhouses can be entered from either side, and this arrangement is one also to be highly commended. The family bathhouses are much more uh, commodious, being as large as some of the bedrooms in the average hotel, and are designed more particularly for the use of ladies and children. A stream of excellent water from a dry well flows into a large tank, and from this is supplied the water for the shower bath, thus including quality and force. There you go, you need force. So they also built a saloon and a pavilion. And the saloon was promoted as being modern and able to accommodate three times more customers than any other saloon in the country. Okay. And there were also two billiard tables and a lunch stand. And it was noted in some of the advertisement and PR that everything would be sold at city prices. Don't know what that means. Uh, but the pavilion, the dance pavilion, was elevated six feet off of the ground with two staircases leading to it. There was a raised platform for the orchestra at one end, and the entire pavilion had party-colored blinds. And I didn't know what party-colored blinds were, and they are simply blinds with different colors in different areas. Right. I don't know. Yeah, and this was mainly to keep the sun at bay, but it was also mentioned that the blinds were there to ensure privacy for the clubs and societies that used the pavilion. There yeah. was a restaurant that served good meals at good meals are served at the yeah. cost of 50 cents. What weird language they had. Exactly. Uh, an electric plant was built that supplied electricity to the resort as well as a general office that offered to store valuables when visiting. And a pier extended 150 feet into the lake and was covered with a pagoda-shaped roof. In addition to swimming, there were 20 rowboats, two large sailboats, and a small steamboat. There were also a number of active burrows with saddles for the amusement of children, and a flying genie. But what is a flying genie? Exactly. That's one again I had to look up. And it's sort of like a cross between a merry-go-round and flying swings, sort of. It's more like boards, like uh, that form a circle and are attached to a central pole by ropes or chairs. And you sit facing inward, and uh, other people or the active burrows would make you spin in a circle. Apparently, this was huge. All right. This was okay. huge. Yeah. So, moving along, um, you could rent bathing suits, and they were apparently such that quote, none be ashamed to wear, end quote. <laughs> Unlike the bathing suits of the 70s, um, yeah. the, it, here's a quote, each bathhouse is provided with a shower of pure water and bathrooms. Suits and towels cost only 25 cents for a bath, while the railway fare is 50 cents for the round trip from either this city of Ogden. Okay. Uh, bathrooms can be attained yeah. at the depot. The company have their own and telegraph. Weird, yeah. Yeah, and will send instructions ahead of the trains. Trains run every few hours to Lake Park during the bathing season. There seems like there's a lot of rules going it, on here, and I'm not sure. Yeah, it's almost like this. a different language. Yeah. So o o over the next few years, 
attendance waned as the lake was seen uh, as less fit for bathing, mostly because the shore was very muddy. And by 1892, reports were that the resort hadn't been used in two years, but there are still excellent picnic areas. Unfortunately, the Great Salt Lake waters started receding and made bathing even more difficult and unappealing, and the lake was so far away that the resort actually closed in 1895. One of the lake owners of the Lake Park Resort was Simon Bamberger, who would eventually become the governor of Utah, and he was building his own railroad line from Salt Lake City to Ogden. And like many railroads and trolley lines, he needed to increase the patronage. So he bought the original buildings of the Lake Park Resort and moved them about three miles east to Farmington. And there was a small lagoon on the 40 acres of property that was originally used to harvest ice. So Bamberger had swampland cleared and enlarged it to nine acres. And it was decided to name the resort Lagoon because of the lagoon, which obviously makes marketing sense. Exactly. So bowling... Elegant dancing pavilion, fine music, a shady bowery, and good restaurants were the main advertised draw when Lagoon opened on July 12, 1896. Uh, as we mentioned, buildings were uh, five buildings were moved from Lake Park, and one of them, the Lake Park Terrace, actually lasted until 2004. So the five buildings, they consisted of a fun house, a hotel, a dance pavilion, a saloon, and a restaurant. And the first thrill ride actually debuted that year. It was a traditional shoot the shoots, which is a boat ride that, you know, the boats would slide down a 30 foot high incline right into the lake or the lagoon. A bathhouse was built a few years later to bring it uh, in full scale swimming. And on busy summer day, close to 5,000 swimmers would be in the lake. Uh, boating, roller skating, picnicking, and hot air balloon rides were all the rage at the time, too. The Rockets Over the Lake ride debuted in 1900 and lasted until 1987. Uh, this was a traditional amusement park ride that we've all seen. Yeah. It's, you know, where the rockets spin around a central pole, sort of like the Astro Orbiters meets uh, a carousel. And a new dance floor was built that included a large band shell. And music would be a big draw to the lagoon over the next 100 years. And, and oddly enough, a zoo was added in 1898, and the main attraction was a grizzly bear named Nero. You know, it's okay. And Nero actually escaped a few times, didn't hurt anybody, but just ate some of the park birds during his escapades or escapes. All right. And, and yeah, yeah. In 1906, the carousel was opened, and it featured 47 hand-carved wooden horses and is still running today. Now, not much else would be added to the park for almost 15 years, and this next addition would be the roller coaster actually called Roller Coaster. No superlatives whatsoever were needed, just Roller Coaster. And the wooden coaster was built by John Miller, who built a lot of the coasters at Coney Island. And it had a lift hill of 45 feet, reached 45 miles per hour, and was 2,500 feet long. And as I mentioned, it is still running to this day. The swimming pool arrived in 1921 and boasted a million gallons of water fit to drink, which is disgusting. And would remain open <laughs> yeah. for 55 years. Uh, another pool that was cemented, quote, was filtered open into the and uh, open in the decade and offered 1.5 million gallons. No word on whether that one you can drink too. Um, they also added fireworks yeah. in the mid 1920s and continued to heavily plant the gardens and environs with plants and trees. And even during the Great Depression, Lagoon was still going strong with the funhouse, uh, the airplane swing, the rockets over the lake, tilt-a-whirl, shoot-the-shoots. They were all still packing them in. 
The Dodgem Ride opened in 1940, and the Lagoon also had a lot of musical performers, including uh, Benny Goodman, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, and Glenn Miller. Yeah, and Lagoon, like many other parks across the country, would eh, sort of close during uh, World War II for several seasons. In this case, they closed for three. Uh, 1943, 1944, and 1945, mainly due, of course, to shortages and rationing. And after the war, Lagoon would see major changes that probably saved it and prepared it for the future. And what future is that? Well, tune in two episodes from now to find out. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is Iron Man the Gauntlet by Owen Colfer. And this is another entry in the Marvel's Young Adult series. And I've reviewed and loved the Black Widow series. Uh, So when I found out that Colfer was writing an entry about Iron Man... I was super excited. Uh, Colfer should be well-known name, uh, well-known name to Communicore cadets. We both love the Artemis Fowl and the Warp Time Travel series. And Colfer's style is engaging, witty, and sarcastic, which is always good. And I know that I knew that Colfer would be a great person to tackle Iron Man and, and Tony Stark. So the Gauntlet straddles the Marvel Cinematic Universe that we're both that we're all used to and the comic book world. It's a great tie-in for both genres and is really going to satisfy films of the com- uh, fans of the films, the comics and the cartoons. Now there's no direct correlation to the films, but I think it's a good addition. Fans and newcomers are really going to learn quite a bit about Iron Man. So in the Gauntlet, the book, Colfer takes us into Tony's past, and we see a principal interaction between Tony and his father that sets Tony on a more altruistic path. And again, Colfer's experience writing young adult and tween novels really helps him build very believable characters, especially the teens. Now, fans of Iron Man tech are going to love the book, especially the moments when Tony is backed into a corner and has to make do with partial suits and equipment. And Friday... Iron Man's artificial intelligence, and he's got a robot, Tony Stark's robot, which uh, apparently doubles as Tony on his yacht. He's like a, a looks like a real android type thing when when Tony's on a covert mission. Both of those characters play a large part of the story, and you know, of course, act as comic foils. So the gist of the story is that Tony is scheduled to make an appearance at an environmental conference in Ireland. And Tony Jot, again, piloted by Robo-Tony, while the real Tony's on a mission, makes its way to Ireland. And the yacht is pretty impressive, technology-wise, and fans will love getting uh, a peek at the inside of it. So Tony makes it to the boat after the mission and decides to take his party pack suit, which is what Iron Man or Tony uses when it's for PR and public appearances. You know, it has lots of fireworks and a light show. It can be used like a DJ booth. And while he's flying to the summit, he gets a ping on a boat that's on a deserted island and decides to investigate it. And that's when all of the surprises happen. So one of the characters that helps ground the book in the teen young adult world is, and I'm going to totally butcher this, Seoris, Seoris, I'm not sure how to say her name, Soyaris Tony, a young Irish woman who ends up becoming the hero of the story. Uh, overall, there's a lot of well-written action scenes in the book, which is really expected since it is a superhero novel, but Colfer does take us deeper into Tony's psyche as well as that of Sayoris. 
And yes, there is some teen angst. That's to be expected. But all the characters' emotions really do lead to a deeper story. And as, as intoned, there are times when Tony is backed into a corner without a suit or with a less powerful suit. And we see Tony and Sayoris really depend on their intellects. And the villain of the book, who I don't really want to talk about because it's sort of a surprise, is different from the movies, and he is in one of the Iron Man films, and aligns much more closely with the comics. He's drawn very well, and a great villain to uh, Tony's hero. Fans of Iron Man, again, are going to love the book, especially a look at some of the new suits and how they function. And, you know, if you're sort of new to the Iron Man universe or you've only seen the movies, Colfer really does a great job of bringing you up to speed and not leaving anyone behind. So I highly recommend it. It's a great book for adults and teens, anybody that loves Iron Man. So this week's book is Iron Man the Gauntlet by Owen Colfer. opportunity to see the new Disney film Moana. It was about the daughter of the village chief and the village chief didn't want his people to leave the island but her grandma believed in her and told her to find the demigod Maui. I really liked it because it was funny especially Maui and my favorite characters were the grandma and Moana. And actually, the music is by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who used to play Hamilton in the Broadway smash hit musical, Hamilton. I recommend Moana for ages four and older. I hope you've all enjoyed Communicore Weekly, and thank you, Jeff and George, for letting me be on the show. To find out what I'm doing next, Please follow me on Twitter at I am Captain Leo. For Jeff Heinbuck and George Taylor, this is Leo. Welcome, 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 and thank you. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. Peter Pan's Flight is one of the most classic attractions in the Magic Kingdom, where guests can board pirate ships and just take to the skies and soar with Peter and the Darling Children and the Lost Boys all over London and Neverland. But one of the, the biggest wow moments, for me at least, is when you first come over the hill when you're in London and you see all of London beneath you and you get, you know, Big Ben is there and all the traffic is rolling by in the busy streets. It's just always impressive to me. But um, the traffic has always, like, how, how do they do that, I always wondered. I always thought maybe they were little cars on a conveyor belt mm-hmm. and they were going. Uh, but it's actually much, much more simple than that. There are actually <laughs> two small dots of black light paint every car that are painted onto a bicycle chain that's just continuously running over and over again. So it, it's super simple. They're not even, like, real things. It's just one long bicycle chain, two, two little dabs of paint for the headlights of each car, and then that's it. Let them go. That's pretty impressive. What a simple thing becomes such an amazing effect. That's incredible. Yeah, I never knew that one either. That's, that's a new one, so, wow. Blows my mind. Fantastic. Fantastic. So something else that blows our mind is 
the year of a million or so limited time cadets. Nailed it. Nice work. Weekly prize week, especially because you just threw it at me. I took it and I ran with it. Good. I was going to make an IT crowd joke about, you know, the internet being on top of Big Ben, but I figured I would Not all of our listeners might be, get it, but that's okay. Not listens to the IT crowd, which is a great show. Anyway, so only, uh, what, three more episodes three now? Three more for after this. To, no. Yeah, wow. Yeah, three. To yeah, enter yeah. the year of a million or so weekly time cadets. Yeah. So email communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name and address so you can be in the contest. And this week's prize winner is going to get a Communicore Weekly prize pack. And the winner is Michael B. from Torrance, California. Yay! Congrats, Yay. Michael. How close is Torrance, California to where uh, you are? It's fairly close. And now that I'm looking at the name, I'm going, I know this guy. So and it's, it's pretty close, actually. Uh-oh. It might Uh-oh. be a special so delivery, you, Michael. Save on postage. Exactly. There you go. Just some shoe leather. Uh, so don't forget, you you still have time to enter the contest and win an amazing prize. Well, we hope they're amazing. Just email communicorweekly at gmail.com. So we are at the end of another episode. So thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. However you get the show, YouTube, iTunes, whatever, leave us a rating, leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, and uh, again, email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com to enter the contest or leave us a comment of some sort. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm at Imagine Earning. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. You can also call us on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. And visit communicorweekly.spreadshirt.com where you can pick up some incredible Communicore Weekly t-shirts. And you still got a few weeks left to get your official cadet membership card and stickers. All you got to do is send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And you can always visit patreon.com slash Weekly to find out how you can support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heinbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. And they're gone.